today we're going to consider the most well-known prophet uh, in the Minor Prophets, and that is Jonah. We all know the story of Jonah. Uh, we're familiar with it. If you grew up in church, it's the one that uh, teachers love to teach in Sunday school class on the felt boards. I mean, we know, we know the, the basic gist of it. And I, I think that the most fascinating uh, aspect of Jonah is the closing line in which God says, should I not have compassion on such a great city as Nineveh that has all of these people, and should I not have compassion on them and their cattle? And so today's message is entitled, Meat is Murder. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> a biblical case for vegetarianism. Uh, no, it's not. It is a really weird closing line, too. Look, what we're going to be considering today is the mystery of God's compassion uh, and the challenges of that for us as believers and how much we are like Jonah so often. Uh, if I can get the first slide up, I want to just begin with this verse uh, from Jeremiah, uh, chapter 32, verse 41, uh, God's heart toward fallen, lost humanity. He's speaking over Israel in its rebellion, but Israel is a representative of fallen humanity. And he says, I will rejoice in doing them good. And here's the thing, we like that a lot when it's spoken over us. We don't care for it when it's spoken over people that we don't think deserves it. This is a problem that we have uh, as Christians. I think that we, are, we struggle actually with the words of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3-6. through six. God, our Savior who desires all people. What does he say? All. And what does all mean in the Scripture? It means what it says. Desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. Uh, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for who? All. Which is the testimony given at the proper time. But here's the challenge of these two passages in light of what we're going to consider in Jonah. When we look out over the world and see its injustice, immorality, and indifference, how quick we are to put ourselves on the side of God. The Gospel, instead of being good news about God's love and the pursuit of a lost world through the death and resurrection of Jesus, becomes a dividing line between who is in and who is out. Anger at sin quickly becomes a distaste for the sinner and we are, we are unsettled by God's strange patience with a hostile world. But if we misunderstand the gospel and God's gracious character, we will avoid witness, we will despise grace, and we will nurse hostility. And those are the three things that we're going to consider today in the story of Jonah that we will avoid witness, that we will despise grace, and that we will nurse hostility. I, I like what Abraham Heschel says on the mystery of God's wrath and compassion. He said it would be easier if God's anger became effective immediately. Once wickedness had reached its full measure, punishment would destroy it. Yet beyond justice and anger lies the mystery of compassion. 
This is why it says in Jeremiah 9.24, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. What should we know about God? That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. What I want us to be thinking about today when we look at Jonah is I want us to see ourselves in Jonah. That we, when we run from God, we refuse our witness. When we judge God, we judge God when we despise His grace. And we reject God when we remain in anger or nurse hostility. So first, we run from God when we refuse our witness. Notice what Jonah, this, the beginning of the story of Jonah begins. And Jonah's unique because most of the prophets actually are a recording of the, of the prophets' sayings um, over the people as conduits of God's very voice. Jonah is unique in that it's a narrative. It tells the story of Jonah's rebellion against being the prophet that God has called him to be. Uh, and so here we have in the first few verses, it says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So God is, is aware of the evil that is being played out in the city of Nineveh. But what we must always remember is that God's call for the prophets to go and declare God's anger over disobedience, over sin, is for, is for the purpose of bringing about a change of heart so that God can relent in His anger, so that God can bring forth His forgiveness and mercy. He says, but Jonah, what does he do? He rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He tries to get away from God. And he went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he, that's a really hard word to say. He tried saying that out loud. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Notice two times here it says that Jonah, instead of obeying the word of God, I want you to go and be a witness to this wicked place. Jonah's like, I don't like where this is going. I don't like the idea that these people might be given the opportunity to repent. What I want is judgment. And so Jonah goes the opposite direction that God calls him to go. And what happens? Well, in verses 9 through 10, it says, and, 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 or excuse me, what, what begins to happen in the story is that Jonah gets on the ship, and the ship, as he's sleeping, Below in the ship, a giant storm. God basically brings a storm. And these pagan sailors recognize that something really bad is about to happen. And they approach Jonah. They find him sleeping. And they're like, do you not even care uh, that, that we're about to go down? And, and they say, tell us who you are. And Jonah says to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. Clearly not fearing the Lord in the right way because the fear of the Lord, a true fear of the Lord is not cause us to run away from God. A true fear of the Lord causes us to run toward God because the only safe place is in His bosom. The only safe place is in direct obedience to His call upon our lives. We fear God as it, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord and we fear the Lord like we fear a good father. 
We fear offending him because he's been good to us and gracious to us. So Jonah actually is, is not being honest here. He fears God's compassion on a people that he does not like. That's what he fears. And he says, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was third time fleeing from the presence of God because he had told them. Three times we're told that Jonah is trying to get away from God's command. And how is it that he's fleeing from God? He's fleeing from God by his refusal to be a witness for God. He's fleeing from God by his rejection of being a mouthpiece for God. And yet here, the irony is he recognizes that God is the creator of, the very, of, of all that is, all that is seen. He says, he made the sea in the dry land. How foolish to think that he can escape him. And yet, here we find the great evil of indifference. It's that word, that archetypal sentence spoken by Cain, am I my brother's keeper? How am I to be responsible for those pagans out there? Indifference to evil is more insidious than evil itself. It is more universal, more contagious, and definitely more dangerous. And Jonah would rather ignore God's command to call a people that are entrenched in sin, in bondage to that sin, to repentance, that they might find freedom by being in right relationship with God, he would rather leave them in their sin, be indifferent to that sin, and go the opposite direction, get away from God, and get away from God's commands, but he cannot escape God, for no one can escape God. He is closer to you today than you are to your own thoughts. And this is why we need to understand as a church that we cannot run from God, but we are running from God when we refuse to be His witness. This is a really challenging statement because often the gospel has been turned into this dividing line, as I said. We live within a mentality uh, that is often driven by how do we protect ourselves from that pagan culture out there. But what we need to understand is we can't protect ourselves from the sin that's out there because we, because we can't escape the fact that that sin lives just comfortably right in here. We also can't escape the fact that that the scripture is very quick to say that we are not to judge those outside of the church. Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians to the Corinthian church in chapter 5, verses 9 to, 9 to, uh, to verse 10, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. He's addressing the danger of leaving sin unaddressed within the church, hiding behind masks of false self-righteousness. He's saying this can't go on. The church needs to be a place that is confessional. The church needs to be a place that is vulnerable, where we come together like, a, like people in an AA meeting and we recognize that we are broken, sinful people in need of, of mercy and grace every single day. It's why we live in the shadow of the cross. The cross is something that we must die on again and again and again. 
And this is why Paul says, when he says to, that judgment is to happen within the church, he's not saying that we go around judging each other. He's saying that we as a family of God who live in the light of the grace of the gospel are to call each other to continually live transparently, openly, recognizing our desperate need for Jesus every moment of every day. But we take this word of judgment and we turn it toward those outside of the church. And Paul says this, he goes, I'm not meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. In fact, he says, no, what we are called to be, the reason that the moment you were born again, you weren't taken immediately into the presence of God is because we live in the age of grace where God's compassion, his patience, his forbearance toward a world that is hostile toward him is continuing to be played out while he calls and draws people to himself through the witness and the testimony of the church. Louise shared this incredible statistic, and I don't know how accurate it is, but I believe it. Said that there's been a new survey that 85% that, uh, of, of those that were interviewed that do not go to church asked if they would be willing to go to church if someone asked them, said yes. 85% of the people surveyed that were not believers said if they were asked to go to church, they would go to church. And what the survey found is that only 2% of Bible-believing Christians are willing to ask someone to come to church. Now I want to ask you the question, how is that different than what Jonah did? Because you come to church on Sunday, do you feel like you're right with God? Or do you recognize that the reason we come together and gather around King Jesus to worship Him and celebrate His life and to learn from His Word is that we would be a people that as we gather, we, we remind ourselves of who we are in Jesus and our desperate need for His grace that we might become carriers of that grace to a world that desperately needs it. But how often are we like Jonah where we utilize the church as a place to, we treat our church building, it looks like a castle and that's exactly what we treat it like. If we could only dig a moat around it to keep all of those scary people out. But no, if door of hope is to be a door of hope, we cannot be like Jonah. Because when we run, we run from God every time we refuse to be a witness to the kingdom of Christ. I believe that the central purpose of the church is to win souls. This is why I'm engaged with Luis Plow. And you know what's fascinating? Evangelism is out of vogue in the church today. It's no longer cool. And here's the thing, when the church stops evangelizing, when the church stops actually bringing the good news to the lost world, we as Christians become bored. And that's when we begin to replace the call to be witnesses to the world with a whole bunch of a plethora of other things that keep us at least intrigued enough to come back again and again as we gaze at our navels trying to discover who we ought to be in Jesus. But that's not what God has called us to be. He wants to, you want to discover who you are called to be? Then go out and be the vehicle that I called you to be by which my grace can be manifested to the lost. And the person you think is the worst, most unsavable person, that is the person I'm for, that is the person I'm pursuing, and you have forgotten that you are that person as well. This is the gospel of Christ. This is the good news. And yet, so often, we are going the opposite direction of what God has called us to go to. 
We compare ourselves to the world and, and, and make ourselves feel better by the fact that we're not doing those horrible things that those people out there are doing. When in actuality, that creates layers of mass because most of us have areas that we continue to struggle with even as born-again believers and because we, we are unwilling to be open and vulnerable and confessional with our lives, we continue to find ourselves trapped in sin when actually our freedom from the power of sin comes when we confess it for sin leaves the body through the mouth. And the Spirit fills the life when it's yielded to Christ. And I'll tell you what the Spirit is all about. The Spirit's not primary goal is not to give you words of knowledge and prophecy and powers of healing. The Spirit's primary purpose is to be a witnessing spirit to the saving truth of Jesus. And if he wants to bring those other things along with that, if it serves that testimony, fine. But the primary goal of the Spirit is a missionary spirit. He is here to draw the world to Jesus Christ, and he does that through the witness of the church. And if we aren't doing that, I don't know what we're doing. We can't refuse our witness. I've been feeling it more and more in my own life of just that tension of how we get so comfortable in our Christian lives and how we, when we're really honest, we have to admit that we're far more ashamed of Jesus than we like to admit. And even that, we're uncomfortable with the people that he's willing to save. But maybe if we were able to see ourselves in the light of the gospel, to see ourselves as fundamentally broken as we actually are, we would have an easier time loving well. I remember hearing the story of Hudson Taylor who grew up in a strong Christian home and had incredible Christian parents and a Christian education. And his mom prayed that he would be given a vision of his own depravity. She prayed fervently for her son, not that he would be successful, not that he would get the best education possible and find the most beautiful wife possible. No, her only prayer was, Lord, show him that he is a sinner because he is useless if he doesn't see it. And God answered her prayer. And Hudson Taylor speaks of this incredible experience where he was shown how black his own heart was even as he lived a very upright, righteous life. Uh, in comparison to those around him. Because the moment we actually get in the presence of Jesus, the distance between us and the worst person we can think of shrinks immediately. And it's when we understand that that we can actually humbly enter into a broken world and be willing to get our hands dirty and our feet dirty as our hearts remain pure, given to the Lord is living sacrifices. I, I wanna just say it just practically. I am convinced and I believe the mission of this church is to be a conduit for revival in the city of Portland. I've been reluctant to utilize the word revival because it's been used and abused and misunderstood, but I believe it is the word that captures the heart. It is the thing that I long for more than anything. It's the whole reason that Door of Hope even began is God, I had a dream that I was a part of a revival in the city of Portland, and that 
spurred something on where I'm like, I have to step out in faith. We have to start a church. We have to do this thing. I believe God wants to bring about an awakening in our city, an awakening to the awareness of God's presence, a conviction over sin, and that indifference, a, a, a hunger for the word, an empowerment of the Holy Spirit, which will inevitably lead to mass evangelism and, and churches that are filled with people that cannot get enough of God or one another. That is what I long for. That's what I believe we're called to. And if we're not living toward that, we can't force a revival. We can't make one happen, but I do believe we can prevent it. And so I believe, like Jonah, who's given a command by God, and the command is, be my witness to this city because I care about these people because this is a great city and what makes a city great, any city, any town, any place is people. God is about people. He's about humanity. So, secondly, we judge God when we despise His grace. So you remember what happens. Jonah is swallowed up by a large fish. Uh, they, they throw... It's fascinating. The sailors, they, uh, they don't even want to, to throw Jonah overboard. Jonah says, Do you, if you want the storm to reside, you've got to throw me overboard. They throw him overboard, and they, and, they, and they repent, and they immediately, they get right with God. The storm stops. They find, actually, God even uses Jonah in his rebellion to still bring about repentance in these sailors' lives. And then Jonah is swallowed up by a fish three nights he spends in the belly of the fish and then we're told after three nights and i don't know did he die what the story is insinuating that it took three days for him to begin to pray uh, but but he recognizes god's compassion and needs it for himself in this moment and he he i it's it's a weird prayer because it's not a prayer that fully captures uh, repentance, but it is a prayer that fully acknowledges God's sovereign hand. And the fish throws up Jonas on, Jonah onto the shore. And what a, what a powerful picture. <laughs> Jesus' own words, I wish you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, because you're indifferent, I vomit you out of my mouth. But God, through the fish, vomits Jonah right back onto the shore. Now let's get back to what I called you to in the beginning. God chastises those whom he loves. And here we must see that when we judge God, we judge God when we despise his grace. Because what happens? Jonah goes to the city of Nineveh. He declares God's coming judgment and the city repents. Fully repents. From the king down, as Tim says in the Bible Project video, even the cattle repent. <laughs> and then Jonah goes out on a hill waiting to see what will happen to the city, still hoping for judgment, still hoping that God didn't really mean it, that God's not going to show this city mercy. And he's angry. And so it says in Jonah chapter 3, verses, uh, verse 10 through chapter 4, verse 4, he says, when God saw what they had did, what they did, repented, how they turned from their evil way, God relented. There's that word again. He changed his mind. He changed his direction to, of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, 
and he was angry. I, I think it's important uh, for us to see, and this is the challenge that we, that we face as believers, just like the prophet Jonah, is that there is always a contingency in God's anger. <laughs> it's a really fascinating uh, reality because it can never be disconnected from his patience. The patience of God means his restraint of justifiable anger. The message of anger always includes a call to return and to be saved. The call to anger is a call to cancel anger in God's economy. That's not generally our economy. But look what happens. He says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And just like he ran from God three times, now we see he's angry three times. Uh, and it says, and he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful. I had to get away because I knew you were going to forgive them. Man, at least he's stinking honest. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Looking back, quoting from Scripture itself, Exodus 34. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And then I like how he adds this phrase to, that, to God's own proclamation of himself. And relenting from disaster. It's a cool, it's a really cool line. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. Now that I know that you're kind, kill me now. <laughs> oh, man. For it is better for me to die than to live. What's he saying? I put it in there. This is my... This is the Josh White Amplified version right here. I'd rather die than watch you save my enemy. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? In other words, he's like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> You're the worst mouthpiece I've ever had. <laughs> and yet, what is Jonah doing? He's misjudging God's character. He actually thinks that God is being unjust by not bringing judgment because he does not understand that anger in God's economy is always comes with contingency. And actually, it would. It would make more sense to our minds when really horrible, wicked, evil things happen in the world if there was instant justice for it. This is why we constantly wrestle with the question, how can God be good if he allows so much evil in the world? And the answer is found here. The answer is that because God is patient. But his patience isn't forever. It will run out. But he will give people the opportunity to repent and return. And you see, we don't like that because it flies in the face of our understanding of justice and judgment. It also reveals our dislike for people. This is why Jesus himself said, listen, I tell you whoever is angry with his brother or sister without reason has committed murder against them. He doesn't say they should never be angry, but he says that often our anger is without reason. It's not justifiable anger. That often our anger at people is over. We don't like the way that they act. Heck, I was reading actually in book club, uh, Daniel Kenneman's book, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, and he had this incredible uh, uh, moment where he talks about uh, how we process decision-making around 
politics. And he says that, that because we do not have the information we need to have, but we are so confident in our ability to make sound decisions, when in actuality most of our decisions have massive holes in them, he says we will basically create simpler questions in our minds to answer the questions that we can't answer so that we feel like we're making good decisions. And he uses the example of how we will judge a candidate not based upon the information we know around their political records, but we will judge them based upon the strength of their chin. And he said that's actually a proven fact. The candidates with strong chins do better in politics. What is wrong with us? I finished that book and all I knew is that I will never trust another decision that I make. And yet, it, it shouldn't be that surprising for the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things and not to be trusted that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And here's the thing is that we often apply our grid of what we think ought to happen to God. This is the essence of original sin. Choosing to define oursel for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. Who is in and who is out. One of the things that really comes out strongly in, in Jonah is a misunderstanding of election even. For, for Jonah, election was we're chosen, which means you're not. We're in with God, which means that you can't be. And because of that faulty understanding of God's, God's sovereign selection of a nation that didn't do anything to earn that selection, he began to believe that God chose them, which meant he rejected everyone else. And when God blows up his vision of that and says, you've missed the whole point. We do the same thing. How often is the doctrine of election driven by conversations about who's actually elect and who isn't? But listen, we're not a part of the frozen chosen, okay? We have been chosen by God. I chose you, Jesus said. You didn't choose me. That's true. But what does he go on to say to his disciples in the Great Commission? Now go and make disciples of all nations. I chose you that through you I can save all. That is the logic of election. That logic is missed here. And what happens is that Jonah applies a faulty grid, a faulty understanding of God's redemptive purposes back upon God. And what it does is it causes him to literally despise God's grace. And you know why he despises grace? The same reason that the world despises grace. Because it's not fair. Grace is never fair. It's never fair. Because it doesn't have anything to do with you. It has everything to do with God and His mysterious heart toward humanity. I don't know why God doesn't wipe all of us off the planet. I don't know why He chooses to redeem us other than the Scripture declares because it is in His nature to love. And that love is the supreme attribute. But let's not get a faulty understanding of love for all of his attributes seamlessly work together of one as one, but his wrath is merely his love violated. And he is angry at sin because it robs him of what he loves, which is people. And he does not need you and I just as he didn't need Jonah nor the Ninevites, but he is not content to exist without us. And I can't speak to why. I just accept it 
by faith and thank God for it every moment of every day because the world is gasping for grace. And we as a church are called to proclaim God's unfair grace to a world that doesn't deserve it, but he can't wait to give it. And what the world doesn't understand is that it hungers and pants for it every single day. So finally, we reject God when we nurse hostility. Jonah hates grace because he doesn't understand God. He misunderstands his character. He doesn't understand that God's judgment, God's anger at sin, uh, always has within it contingency. And I think that this is the challenge that we face as believers. And look what happens in chapter 4, verses 9 through 11 to close. But God said to Jonah, do you, do you do well to be angry for the plant? God had caused a plant to come over Jonah and give him shade, and then in the night, he put a worm on it that ate the plant, so that, and then caused this harsh wind and the sun to beat down on Jonah's head. He's teaching Jonah a serious lesson. And God is, and Jonah's angry about the plant. He feels more compassion for the plant than he does for the people of Nineveh. And God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well. I love Jonah. He's like an obnoxious little kid uh, to be angry. I'm so angry, I wish I was dead. That's what Jonah says. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. Notice he's making an incredible statement around sin. This is a powerful theology of sin. This reveals the, uh, the bondage of the will that sin blinds. That sin sin, the exceeding sinfulness of sin, it actually, it, it's so, it's, it, it's so infectious that it actually, it, we end up not even being able to see it. And he goes, they don't know their right hand from their left. It's the very words that Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they, what? Know not what they do. And he says, and also much cattle I have nothing to say about that particular statement. <laughs> Meat is murder, uh, according to Morrissey. Um, so, I, what I do have to say about this is the reality that we hinder our relationship with God when we nurse hostility. Um, and and I, I use the words, I actually had in my notes for the title of this slide, we reject God when we hold on to anger, but it's actually not as helpful, I think, as when we nurse hostility. When we actually hold on to anger at another person where it's our deep desire to make them pay for the ways that they have wronged us. And I want you guys to know right now that there's not a person in this room that, will not, that won't experience at some point in their life and multiple times in reality being wronged by another. But I also want you to understand 
that though you may become the victim of someone wronging you, you also will be the victimizer at some point as well. It's an inescapable reality of just living in proximity to another human being. And honestly, uh, if you were to isolate yourself like Grizzly Adams, you would find a way to victimize something. Uh, and I, I watched my own father who uh, lives alone in Alaska, and he, he is both the victim and victimizer in himself as he lives in total isolation and sickness. It, it's incredible how destructive sin is and how destructive anger is. And so his anger now is anger at the world for the situation that he's in because he lived hard and play, he goes, I played hard, son. I called him the other day. It was his birthday. I played hard, and the, look what the world's done to me. Look at the, look at the hand that's dealt with me. And I, I'm, like, I'm like, Dad, I'm sorry that that's happening. And it just, I could just hear the anger and the frustration of how sick he is. And I'm like, here's a man that's by himself, and he doesn't even have anyone to, to direct the anger at. But he's still finding ways to justify that anger, and it's killing him. He said to me recently, we were talking about a time when I was one years old, and I'll close with this story because I think it's a profound picture of how dangerous it is to hold on to hostility. I, when I was visiting dad in January up in Alaska, I brought up a story of my earliest memory. And my earliest memory is myself, and I don't have, my memory's pretty spotty because I was only three when it happened, but my dad had placed me uh, in the back of his car, and I just remember looking out of the car window while my mom and dad were fighting, and my mom was hitting my father, and my father, and, and my father uh, was, was yelling back, and, and the story goes is that my mom and dad had divorced, my dad showed up at our apartment drunk, and he was trying to take me. My mom's friend, Rick, showed up right before my dad was able to leave with me and knocked him out in a single punch. My dad, uh, my mom tells me that I was screaming, Mommy, don't let him take me. And my dad was screaming, he's my son too. So I bring the story up with my dad when I'm visiting him in Alaska. And he says, I'm still angry with you about that. And I'm like, what do you, what do you mean you're angry with me about that? And he goes, I'm angry. And I'm like, why? And he goes, because you didn't want to go with me. And I think about that and just the brokenness of that whole scene. Everybody's hurting in that picture. Every single person. Rick's hurting because he had to knock out his best friend in, from high school, my dad. My mom's hurting because she's going through the pain of divorce and she's terrified that this drunk man's going to take her son. My dad's hurting because he feels abandoned by my mom and he doesn't get to be with his son. And the son, me, in the picture, is hurting because I'm terrified as a kid and I can't figure out what's going on with my mom and dad. I'm too young to comprehend. And yet my dad, 44 years later, I'm still angry with you that you didn't want to go with me. You see, we need to understand that God's anger includes a call to return and to be saved. God's anger is an anger at anything that robs him of a right relationship with you. God's anger is an anger over the ways that sin destroys our lives and kills us. And see, Jonah had allowed this root of bitterness into his heart. And like the plant that deteriorated over his head, that's what his heart was doing. 
And God is trying to show Jonah, give him a vision that I am a God that loves these people. You're the one actually that is deserving of judgment right now. And I'm showing you compassion the same way that I showed them compassion because the call of God is the same to all of us. I love you with an everlasting love and may we understand in the fullness of our being that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And this is why it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, be angry. Yes, don't be indifferent to sin. Don't be indifferent to injustice. Don't be indifferent to the wickedness and the brokenness of this world. But he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, it would be inhuman and inappropriate for us to not be angered by sin. But it is not godlike or Christ-like for us to confuse the sin with the sinner because that is who Jesus came to seek and to save. And this is why Jesus said, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus takes the story of Jonah and he says he identifies with Jonah, Jonah as a type of himself and that identification is specifically with Jonah being swallowed up by the great fish and Jesus uses that as a picture of his own death, his total and absolute identification with sinful humanity. Jesus doesn't just come to meet you where you're at, he comes to identify with you in your sin for he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And when we understand just how much we have been forgiven and what it cost God to forgive us, listen, grace is never cheap, but it is always free. And it comes to us free because He loves you. He's crazy about you. Receive His love. Release the anger. Don't, don't do what my dad's doing. Don't hold on to anger. Don't hold on to hostility. Don't turn your back on a world that needs to hear the good news of Jesus. Cling to Christ. Accept the call to witness and what you'll do is you'll find Christ in everything. Stop misreading His character and receive fully His grace. And don't reject God by refusing to love the lost. This is the gospel. It's the good news. May we cling to it with everything that is in us. Amen? Let's pray.